It's amazing to think how quickly things can change. How different things are since I was last on on Friday. Or how differently things are from my last Monday show. Time can change things so quickly and it's humbling, I tell you what. The Sports Pen is on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along this Monday afternoon. It was an eventful weekend in a lot of ways. We had a couple of All-Star showcases, the Pro Bowl, then the NHL All-Star Tournament. We will get into that. We had LeBron James moving to third all-time in the NBA scoring list. We will get to that as well. There's a lot that we're going to get into, but I tell you what, the news that has dominated the weekend cycle is that of Kobe Bryant's unexpected passing yesterday at the age of 41 in a helicopter crash in Calabasas, California. That's our main story today, and I tell you what, we are going to have a guest coming in studio here in about 15 minutes, Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach. A big weekend for his squad, and I know Kobe was a big influence on him. I'm going to talk to him about that. We're going to get him in the studio here in about 15 minutes, so I want to talk to you about Kobe and his legacy and the shockwaves that it sent throughout the world in the meantime. Kobe was one of nine people who died yesterday when the helicopter that he was on board caught fire reportedly and crashed near Calabasas, California. There were no survivors. It was Kobe and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. There was a pilot and there were two other families, one being that of John Altabelli, who was the head baseball coach at Orange County College, his wife and his daughter, and then another mother and her daughter, who were all going to a basketball game that their three middle school-aged daughters played in. And it was just heartbreaking. I start seeing these rumors pop up around, what was it, just before 3 o'clock yesterday, and it's TMZ saying stuff like Kobe Bryant dead at 41 in a helicopter crash. And I'm seeing this and I'm like, yeah, this can't be real. I mean, how many times do we see it on social media where, you know, it's just clickbait? Like there was a popular one a few years ago that the guy who voices Squidward in SpongeBob SquarePants, the cartoon that the guy who voiced Squidward died, passed away. And people are saying, there goes so much of my childhood. Turns out it was just a rumor for clickbait. That's what I was thinking this was. And I firmly believed, I really did believe that for I don't know how long. And I was just waiting for Kobe to come on Twitter and dispel these rumors, say, guys, it's a hoax, I'm right here, I'm okay. And it just never happened. And for whatever your thoughts about Kobe was as a person, he was somebody that was an icon for the game of basketball and a guy that just seemed indestructible. You know, we saw Father Time catch up with him a little bit toward the end of his career, but Kobe still seemed to have the last laugh. You saw what he did in his final game? I mean, how great was that for basketball in Kobe's final game, going off for 60 points? Kobe seemed to have the last laugh over Father Time. This guy seemed like he was Iron Man, like he was indestructible, invincible. And I think that's why it shakes us so much. Because it's not just the fact that he was 41, and pass away like this, or the fact that seven other people, plus Kobe and his daughter, lost their lives in that. Every life lost is a tragedy. But you think of somebody who's such an icon that you just think that is one of the last people this could happen to. And when it happens, you really do get shook. I was one, I'm not even a Lakers fan, I'm a fan of basketball. Yeah, I like Kobe. And I'm just like, why is this so shaking to me 
why am I getting absolutely rocked by this? I mean, yeah, it's a tragedy when someone dies, but why is this affecting me more than, what do you think about other celebrity deaths? You think about some of the biggest deaths of our lifetime, of this generation. A couple years ago, well, maybe more like, it's probably three, four years by now, Muhammad Ali. But we all kind of knew that was coming. You think about somebody like Michael Jackson or Prince, cultural icons, and they passed away before their time, or at least before what we thought their time should be. It was this one that really got to me. And I just, I can't fathom as to why this gets me so hard, other than the fact that there were young children involved, or that this was a guy who was just known as somebody who's invincible. Now you think about what happened the night before. Kobe is in Philadelphia's hometown watching LeBron James pass him on the NBA's all-time scoring list wearing his team's jersey. I mean, the Lakers will never be LeBron's team no matter what he does there. The Lakers are always going to be Kobe's team first. And Kobe in his hometown is watching LeBron pass him on the NBA's all-time scoring list. Is Kobe bitter? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Kobe's out there shaking LeBron's hand, congratulating him. And then 16 hours later, maybe even less than that, on his way back to Los Angeles for his daughter's basketball game, his helicopter crashes. And it is just insane to think about how much things can change in the blink of an eye. And I know us here in the UP are still reeling from Dion Brown's death on Wednesday. I mean, that was another one that came as just a shock. And we've been hit in a double dose here in the last couple of days. And it's just one of those reminders that if you have beef with somebody, if you're not close with a family member, if something is wrong, maybe it's just better to apologize even when you're right and be close to your loved ones. Because you never know when is the last time you're going to talk to them. And I know that we've known that, but it really hits home after what we've seen the last week. That's why I'm encouraging you, if you've got somebody you've got beef with, you've got a disagreement with someone, put it aside, reach out, even somebody you don't have beef with, reach out to somebody, just be a good person today, make their day. Dion Brown's death has touched almost all of us here in the UP, Kobe's death is being felt worldwide. I mean, just be the kind of person that you need in your life to somebody, today and every day. I tell you what, I've got some audio that I want to play for you. First of all, LeBron James reacting to the news about Kobe's passing and what he meant to him. It is rather lengthy. It borders on about four minutes, but it is worth a listen. When I was a, a kid, when I was in high school, um, you know, I was growing up through the ranks when Kobe came into the league. It was, um, you know, it wasn't a dream of mine to come straight, you know, from high school at that point in time to the NBA. But I was like, wow, a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid being able to, to make that leap, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and as I started playing more ball and I went into high school, the things that he was doing on the floor, I, you know, admired and wanted to be a part of. Um, I went to ABCD camp and he came and talked to all the, all the, all the kids that was there. And I happened to be one of the, one of the kids that was there. And I was just, I was just listening. I was just trying to soak everything up. I could, you know, and I remember one thing that he said, he was like, if you want to try to be, you know, great at it or want to be one of the greats, you got to put the work in. You know, there's no substitution to work. And, and I was a 15-year-old kid at that camp. You can actually find the footage of him, uh, him at that camp. 
Um, and in 2001, I believe um, I was playing in, in New Jersey, and the All-Star game, if I'm not mistaken, and y'all could correct me, was in Philly, right? And he gave me a pair of his shoes, which I ended up wearing um, that following night. It was the red, white, and blue Kobe's. I was a 15, and he was a 14, and I wore them anyways. Um, and I sat and just talked to him for a little bit. He gave me the shoes. I rocked them in the game. Um, and it was the same night that we played uh, Oak Hill against Mello. And then I saw what he was able to do the very next night, winning MVP here um, in Philly. That 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 same uh, that following night. Um, as I got drafted, I still just admired him. You know, seeing what he was able to accomplish, winning championships, having you know, being early in his career where you know he he learned from the misses that he had against the series against Utah. And he just used that as motivation and got better and better and better to him winning multiple championships and uh, continued to admire him throughout my high school rank. And, um, and then as competitors, um, just seeing the work ethic, um, the work ethic that he put into the game. He had zero flaws offensively, zero. Uh, you backed off of him, he could shoot the three. You, pick, you, know, you body him up a little bit, he can go around you. He can shoot the mid-range, he can post. He can make free throws. He has zero flaws offensively. And, um, you know, that's something that I admired as well, just being a, at a point where the defense will always be at bay, where they couldn't guard you at all offensively, where you just felt like you was just immortal offensively because of your skill set and your work ethic. Uh, we take it down to 2008 where we become the redeem, the redeem team. And it was a dream come true for me to be able to line up with, alongside of him, um, just admiring him for so many years and him – seeing him from afar and then being able to be in practices with him and, and you know, me watching and learning. Um, so, on. I mean, it's just, it's just too much. It's just too much. The story is just too much. It doesn't make sense. Um, and just to make a long story short, now I'm here in the Lakers uniform in Philadelphia, where he's from, where I wanted the first, first time I ever met him, gave me his shoes, he won All-Star Week. It's just, it's surreal. I'm happy just to be in a, any conversation with Kobe Bean Bryant, one of the all-time greatest basketball players to ever play, one of the all-time greatest Lakers. The man got two jerseys hanging up in Staples Center. It's just, it's just crazy. Very heartbroken LeBron James reminiscing on his friend Kobe Bryant. Again, passed away yesterday at the age of 41. They did continue with the NBA slate of games scheduled for last night and into tonight as well. Tomorrow night will be the first Home game at Staples Center. Since Kobe's passing, the Lakers will be hosting, quote-unquote, the Clippers. And you can only imagine what the scene is going to look like that night. Last night, though, several players around the league and several teams, in fact, honored Kobe in their own way. And it started here with the sound I'm going to play for you here in a moment with the San Antonio Spurs and the Toronto Raptors. They agreed that whoever won the opening tip would hold the ball for 24 seconds, let the shot clock run out in honor of Kobe's number 24. They have decided that whoever wins the tip, and in this case Toronto, they are going to let the shot clock run out because of the number 24 to honor Kobe Bryant. Fitting. Appropriate. As Fred Van Vliet holding on to it and the crowd recognizing what this means.
Sean, how did these guys play? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, it'd be tough for me in this situation. It's cliche, but it really is amazing how much life can change day to day. And without getting too sentimental here in the sports pen, again, reach out to somebody, make their day to day, make somebody feel special, be the person that you need in your life to someone today. I tell you what, Kobe wasn't the only one who perished yesterday. And that's what I think a lot of us feel that we need to keep in mind. I'm not just talking about the other people in the helicopter crash. I'm talking worldwide. Soldiers getting killed, our servicemen overseas, our troops. Every life is sacred, and every life lost is a tragedy. And we do know the nine identities of the people on board that helicopter that crashed in Calabasas yesterday. Kobe and his daughter, again, the Altabelli family. John Altabelli, his son, a scout for the Red Sox, a baseball coach himself, formerly coached in the Cape Cod League, and by all accounts, he was an outstanding individual, an outstanding coach, part of USA Baseball, his wife and his daughter, another coach and her daughter again, and the pilot. And I tell you what, while we lose a cultural icon with Kobe, and that's the one that sticks out to you, those are families that need your prayers as well. Kobe may have been the only household name, but nine lives were lost, and all of them need your prayers and thoughts just as well as Kobe does. And I tell you who else needs it as well. Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's wife, and those that him and Gianna left behind, their other daughters. I can't even imagine what they're going through right now. I hope I never do. It would be my hope that nobody ever has to. I know a lot of lives were altered for the, for the worse yesterday. And all of us here at ESPN-UP are just as much in shock as you are at home. With that, let's get Matt Magerzak here in the studio. We'll talk about his team's weekend. We'll get a little more up-tempo here in the back end of the show. Talk Northern Michigan Wildcat Hoops with Coach on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. Joined in the studio by Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach Matt Mackerzak. His team 10-9 overall, 7-4 and in conference play. They're coming off a signature win Saturday at number 11 Grand Valley State. Coach, appreciate you stopping in. Congrats on a great stretch of play here lately. Tell me about this weekend for your guys. Yeah, it was a, it was almost a, a surreal uh, weekend as far as we we started out with Davenport and um, we thought that would be you know probably one of our toughest games of the year and um, we didn't play great offensively but we kind of won the way we normally do played great defense um, made the game low scoring and made just enough plays down the stretch uh, we lost uh, Troy Summers one of our best players to an ACL about a minute and a half in the game so it kind of started out with that negative thing and um, we started out a little rocky you know just and with all that going on and um, we had some guys that hadn't played as much step up and and play really really well so we found a way to get that one and going into the weekend I think whenever you play two teams of that caliber you're just kind of hoping for a split and so after you get the first one you're like oh 
let's see what we can do. It's Grand Valley was ranked number 11, and um, we figured, uh, you know, even if we go with the split this weekend, that's okay. Let's just try to play really well. And um, we probably had our best game of the year, especially offensively. And um, we we had a lead, uh, about a 13-point lead with a minute and a half. Got a little tight at the end. They made a bunch of shots. We missed some free throws, and um, they actually had a shot at the buzzer, um, a half-court kind of heave. And I'm watching, I'm going, there's no way we're going to go 2-0 this weekend, is there? And he misses it and shake hands and, and go celebrate in the locker room. So it was a lot of fun. Coach, I know that your defense, your ball control is something your team takes a lot of pride in, but 15 made threes Saturday at Grand Valley. Tell me about your team's ability to shoot the ball. Yeah, it's something that we've been working on all year. We we shoot the ball in practice more than any team I've ever been around as far as just trying to uh, get up a lot of shots. Our guys do a good job of getting in extra shots on their own, and um, it hasn't been... It hasn't been as consistent all season as maybe we hoped, but it's definitely a different different style and different role for a lot of these guys where um, they're you know now needing to shoot pretty much every open that look they get in our offense, um, and I think they're getting more and more comfortable with it. And also you're just seeing, I think, all that work that they've put in we're shooting the ball a lot more consistently. I think we've only we've made seven or more threes every game since Christmas break. Um, before that, it was very inconsistent. Now we're starting to get a little bit more consistent with it. And then 15, I mean, that's definitely a little combination of, of shooting well and putting in the work and also a little bit of luck whenever you make 15 of them. Well, Coach, and it's not just one guy who's been doing it for you because I think back to a shot that Delapo made in the first half. That kind of sparked your three-point barrage, but some days it's Delapo, sometimes it can be Sam, it could be Matelskim. You've got a lot of guys that can be weapons step up at any time. Yeah, I think that's been the, the best part about our team this year is just that we have so much balance. We're not, we're not relying on one or two players. We have um, a lot of guys that can score in different ways, and um, pretty much everyone we play right now is capable of hitting two, three threes in a game and uh so even though we don't have we have one guy i would call a shooter shooter in metelski that people you know really really lock on on the nice thing is every other player on the floor can is at least a threat from three and you never know on which given night which guy's going to hit two or three of them so um that balance kind of makes us hard to guard at times especially when a few go in early i feel like it even opens up everything else for us Coach, I look at where your team stacks up in the national rankings. Only one other team entering play this weekend has turned the ball over less than you. Tell me about your team's ability to control the basketball. Was that a focal point going into the year, or was that something that you realized they had a talent for? Um, I think it's something we knew going in. It's kind of one of those, I would say it might be the biggest surprise of the season. Uh, Going in, I thought we'd struggle with turnovers just because we lacked a a true point guard or anyone that had any experience playing point guard in college and the ball last year was in Nob and Isaiah's hands so often I was really worried about turnovers so from the first day on we've been very kind of concerned about it and and overstressed it in practice and as the years started I was like oh we're not as bad as I thought and now lately we've been we've been lights out I think we actually just moved up to number one in the country in turnovers because Tech was actually the school ahead of us and they had 18 of them on on Saturday so um, it's been a surprise at the same time I think our guys have have figured out as as our offense hasn't been as consistent as we want the turnovers help twofold one is it gives us the best chance of shooting the most possible shots and and second and it allows us to set up our defense. So I would say the turnover thing almost is the kind of identity of our team is making sure we just take care of the ball well. And a lot of teams in our league pressure um, really heavily, and that's kind of what Davenport, what Ferris, what Grand Valley, that's kind of what they thrive on. Um, And I think one of the reasons we've been able to play some of the top teams 
close or beat beat them has been um, we do take care of the ball really well and we do value it and it helps having you know a senior guard and Sam and a junior guard and Alec who've played a lot and I think have a good understanding of how just how important that is. Coach nationally your top 10 in scoring defense top 25 in defensive field goal percentage what is it about your team's ability to play defense what makes them so potent? Yeah I think uh, Miles Howard I mean we get, I've been starting to get asked by some other coaches and stuff like what do you guys do defensively and you know, I'd love to say it's some some scheme stuff, and but a lot of it's Miles Howard. I mean, he's one of the best defensive players in the country, and um, I, I don't know what he's averaging off the top of my head, but seven points ish per game. And a lot of the coaches in our league have said he's probably one of the five or ten best players in the league. I can't think of another scenario where a guy's had that much impact on games um, just by his defense and rim protection. And um, I think we've we've really changed scheme wise this year um, what we do from what they've done in the past and I think early on even Miles was a little skeptical because we we used him in some different ways we didn't let him just sit at the rim to block shots Um, and it's turned out by using him as kind of that multi-dimensional defender uh, rather than just a shot blocker he's his ability to impact games now he can impact every game and uh, he does it in different ways whether it's guarding you know one player and holding them down or whether it's guarding one of the other team's worst players and just kind of protecting the rim and and trying to kind of guard all five guys but um, it's been really fun to watch him it's been really fun to coach him he definitely is one of those guys he makes some plays where um, even as a coach I kind of turn into a fan sometimes and I'm like wow how did he cover that much ground that quickly so it's been a lot of fun to, to be around him. Talking with Matt Mackers at Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach his team coming off a big stretch of play currently winners of three straight coach I want to go into the conference because you're in your first year you're predicted to finish last in the division fast forward to late January you're seven and four some big wins under your belt did the way the rest of the conference perceived you in the preseason maybe give your guys a chip on their shoulder I would I think so I think the um Mostly the upperclassmen. I think the the freshmen and even the sophomores, I don't know. I think they're just still trying to play as best they can and figure it all out. But um, for the, you know, four guys in our, our on our team that had been through the league and um, had played a lot of games in this league, I think they looked at it like we were, we were pretty key pieces on teams that won a lot the last two years. And... Um, to, to think that now just because we lose two players, we don't have any chance to win games. I, I think that definitely gave those guys a little chip. Um, to be honest, it, it just from me, from a fresh perspective, I looked at it like an 11 and 9 team who lost the two leading scores in the conference. Of course, we're picked last. I mean, it didn't it didn't really give me a chip, but I kind of used it with the guys because I thought. Um, it's something that would frustrate me if I was one of those seniors who, who'd been playing 30 minutes on good teams. And um, I think that maybe helped them identify, okay, we're not going to be able to win the way we have in the past. We're going to have to change our identity and be a new team. And uh, that's probably the thing that is, has been the most fun as a first-year coach is just how willing and those guys have been to buy into a new system and almost how they've wanted to learn every day because they didn't want to finish last they wanted to leave their own mark on the program as as not just part of that group last year but as part of their group and um, so far they've done a great job of that I know they finished last year 11 and 9 in the conference we're at 7 and 4 so um, I think we've definitely surprised a lot of people. 
Coach, I think back to just a month ago, right before Christmas break, your team dropped a game to a Division three school. Now you're out here playing the way you are, picking up wins like you are. Does the locker room just feel different now that you flipped the calendar to January? Um, yeah, I think the I think the loss to Ripon, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be one of those things where I, I don't think I'm ever gonna fully get over it, um, just because you don't. You don't ever get over bad losses as a coach. Um, good wins you forget about pretty quickly, but bad losses stick with you. Um, at the same time, I, we're, we're six and two in January, coming out of break in the conference with a tougher schedule. Uh, maybe it was a good thing. Maybe it was one of those things we needed to wake us up. I know I spent most of Christmas pretty frustrated, watching lots of film, thinking of ways to um, tweak some things and change some things coming out of break. And um, I felt like our players, when we got back, had similar kind of edges to them. And um, we've just kind of, I think it maybe helped us define exactly who we are and what we are. And um, I don't know if we'd be capable of playing as good a basketball as we are now if it wouldn't have been for kind of going into the break with that negative taste. Coach, let's move ahead to this week. Preview this slate of games if you could. Um, yeah, so uh, Saginaw and Northwood, are, we lost both games at home. Um, if you kind of look at our, our schedule, if you took those two out, we're 7-2 and two in the conference with two losses coming to Ferris and at Parkside. So re- And the Ferris game was pretty close. So really, these are the two bad quote-unquote losses on our schedule just because they were both at home against you know teams that are middle of the pack. Um, so now we're going to their place. We're playing a lot better basketball, but um, going on the road presents its own set of challenges. I think Saginaw is uh, one game behind us, I believe, in the conference standings. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we're at a point yet where we look at standings, but obviously we're playing a team kind of had a similar year to us so far. Um, and Northwood's a, a couple games below that. They both play good defense. They both kind of also make the game slow um, very style wise very similar teams um, so hopefully we can continue to do what we've been doing and if we do that the game will be relatively close and it'll come down to who can make a few more plays down the stretch and so far for the most part our group's done a good job of finding ways to make those one or two more plays the confidence level the mood in the locker room what's that like right now it's definitely I don't know if the confidence has changed it's more just the we're less excited about winning. Um, and that sounds like a negative thing, but I, I think it's almost early on. It felt like every time we won, we were like shocked by it. Um, and maybe we were, um, where now it's starting to be like we win a game and it's much more focused on kind of the process of what won us that game. Um, our, our, our guys on Mondays come in a little bit more hungry to learn. Um, we've really embraced kind of a, our scouting and some of the stuff we do to prepare now. Um, we're doing it probably more than most teams are where we're really trying to um, change how we play week in and week out for who we play against. And I think kind of that mindset of just competing one game at a time is probably the thing that's that's been the biggest pleasant surprise. And, and I don't know, I, that obviously comes more from the players than from us because I think all coaches want that. Um, but the players have done a great job of just kind of buying into that one game at a time mentality. And we, we in a way, expect now maybe to win, to compete, and to play well. Where earlier on, I, I don't know if we really expected it. I think it was more like hoping we'd play well, where now I think that's kind of an expectation. And we know what a, a version of our team playing well looks like. So we kind of have a reference point of what mindset we want to get into. Coach, last thing before I let you go, the world was rocked yesterday with the news of Kobe Bryant's passing along with his daughter and seven other people. Tell me what kind of influence Kobe was to you growing up in basketball. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in that age group where I'm 29. So he, uh, when I was growing up, that was that was basketball. I mean, he was my dad was a Lakers fan, a big Magic Johnson fan. So um, as soon as he got in the league, even when he was barely playing as an 18 year old, I remember watching his games, and um, it, it's crazy. Just you know, you wonder like I don't know if I'm coaching if he doesn't play basketball. So you know, kind of his legacy obviously as a player and as a father and all that stuff is something that everyone talked about but all the lives separately he's touched and changed and um, the players he's inspired to work harder because of his famous work ethic and um, just kind of watching him progress as a human being has been the other part that kind of sticks out is you know you remember the kind of cocky 18 year old and then you remember uh, you know someone who's had some ups and downs in the middle of their career and then um, at the end to be such a kind of legendary figure and um, you know his last game I remember watching that and just being in awe and um, then after basketball the the legacy he was building was to me kind of unexpected it certainly was unexpected of what you would have thought a younger Kobe would have done and um, kind of the the way he became such a outstanding you know father figure and it's just completely tragic not only him passing but the way it happened so a uh, tough day um there'll probably be a couple tough days for you know um just fans and i can't even imagine what the family's going through and all his friends and watching the nba players react last night was i mean it was, it was hard to watch and you know you just pray for him and his family and yeah Coach, appreciate you stopping in. Congrats again on a successful week. We'll talk again soon. Yep, thank you. Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach Matt Mackerzak. Let's take a timeout. More in a moment on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along as always. We've got football, hockey, much more to break down here in the back half of our show. A coach right here in the GLIAC. This is making national news. A coach here in Michigan at GLIAC member school has said something really stupid. He's in trouble, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. But first, your Sports Center update. Michigan Xavier Simpson has been suspended for violation of team policies. He will miss tomorrow night's game at Nebraska. So the Wolverines, without arguably their top player, coming off that heartbreaker to Illinois this weekend and trying to win in the Big Ten on the road. That's tough, I tell you what. Nick Castellanos, former Tiger, has agreed to a four-year deal with the Cincinnati Reds. And the rich get richer. Look for the Reds to make the postseason this year. And finally, an Arizona man was pulled over and given a penalty ticket after he was caught using the HOV lane, the high-occupancy vehicle lane, with him being the only technical occupant in the car. A police officer noticed his passenger was a fake skeleton, a Halloween decoration that was tied to the passenger seat and wearing a hat, like one of those bucket hats that you can pull down to hide your face. And he was then given a penalty ticket. Tell you what, those HOV lanes, they can help you. If you're in a big city, if you're in Los Angeles, that can shave at least like half an hour off your commute. This guy was in Phoenix, and he thought he could get away with dressing up a Halloween decoration in a bucket hat, tying it to his front seat. It's actually pretty clever. Although the ticket, I mean, that's a couple thousand dollars if you get caught doing that. That's probably not worth shaving about half an hour to get to your destination. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you in studio. Glad that you're along. Well, I tell you what, we have 
something trending in baseball. Actually, we have something trending in all of sports right now. And that is so many commissioners want to adopt new rules. They want to re-energize, reinvigorate fan interest. So they decide maybe we should do that by making up new rules. We saw that in the Pro Bowl yesterday. Kirk Cousins tried to complete a 4th and 15 after his team scored a touchdown to get his team the ball back instead of the onside kick. Technically, they didn't interpret that correctly. They didn't interpret that rule correctly, if you saw that in the final couple minutes of the Pro Bowl, because a team is only allowed to do that once per game, which they did. What they didn't interpret correctly is that you can only do it when you're down multiple scores. The NFC was down by 5, 38-33, which was the final score when they attempted their 4th and 15 instead of an onside kick. So the first time this happens in NFL history, it's not even interpreted correctly. I don't believe that sticks in the NFL. Seems like an XFL thing, and that's the way I honestly hope it would be. I know we're trying to get away from kickoffs or trying to make the game safer, what have you. I tell you what, though, I, I just don't like that. To me, that's too schoolyard for me. I get on this subject, though, because Major League Baseball is adopting a rule change for the upcoming season. Starting this summer, Major League Baseball will mic up their umpires. I'm going to read a quote directly from our own Pedro Gomez, covers baseball for ESPN. New for the 2020 MLB season, much like NFL referees have done for years, umpires will be mic'd up and tell fans in attendance and those watching on television and listening on the radio if reviewed calls are upheld or overturned, they may also explain rules if necessary. So now we're going to have mic'd up umpires in Major League Baseball coming up this year. I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. I mean, I know they come out, they do, you know, spread the arms safe. I'm doing it here in the studio or they hold the fist up and they say out. I don't mind this though. I don't mind this nearly as much as I do with football adopting a fourth and 15 play. I mean, that just, again, it seems too schoolyard. I'm excited to see that transpire in the XFL though. XFL, by the way, will kick off in less than two weeks. A week from Sunday, a week from Super Bowl Sunday, which, by the way, we haven't even touched on, even though it's Super Week. I mean, we are six days away from the biggest sporting event in the world annually kicking off, Chiefs and 49ers, and we will get to that. But I want to touch on something else in the aspect of football, and it comes from right here in Michigan, from the Great Lakes Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Grand Valley State just hired a new offensive coordinator, Morris Berger. And he has been a man well-traveled, and he's been very successful everywhere he's gone. He has coached and produced several NFL offensive players, including James Washington, the receiver at a breakout year for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Drew Locke, the new quarterback for the Denver Broncos, Chris Carson, the running back for the Seattle Seahawks, a multitude of players, oh, Mason Rudolph, let's not forget him, Mason Rudolph from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He has coached a number of players onto the NFL. He's had success about everywhere he's gone, mostly in the Missouri, Oklahoma area. He's from Missouri. He graduated from Drury College in Springfield. But he said something really stupid without even coaching a game at Grand Valley, who, again, they're a dominant program. They're one of the best in Division II, as you know, but Northern may not even get to see his offense. They may not get to stack up against his offense at all for the upcoming season. In an interview with the student newspaper at Grand Valley, Morris Berger said something really stupid in regards to his admiration for the way Adolf Hitler was able to lead an army. And there was an outcry, as you would imagine. 
and the school decided to suspend him while they launch an investigation. I'm going to now read you the transcript from the Lanthorn, the student newspaper at Grand Valley. The interviewer asked, So you graduated from Drury with a degree in history. You're a history guy. If you could have dinner with three historical figures, living or dead, who would they be? And I'm ruling out football figures. Morris Berger replies, This is probably not going to get a good review, but I'm going to say Adolf Hitler. It was obviously very sad, and he had bad Bad motives, but the way he was able to lead was second to none. How he rallied a group and a following, I want to know how he did that. Bad intentions, of course, but you can't deny he wasn't a great leader. The interviewer then says, the way he was able to get people to rally around him was crazy. Berger responds, yeah, that's definitely one. You have to go JFK with his experience with the country and being the good president that he was and everything. And this might sound crazy, but Christopher Columbus, the ability to go on the journey he was on and his emotions into the unknown. Think about putting yourself in that setting of the unknown and then to take it all in as you arrive is crazy. Wasn't it great how after he admits that he'd like to have dinner with Hitler, he doubles down with Christopher Columbus? Think about that dinner table. JFK, Hitler, Christopher Columbus, and Morris Berger, who is not going to have a job at Grand Valley by the end of the week for all intents and purposes. You know, and I get that he said it's nothing about Hitler's motives, his intentions, what have you. But you've got to know better than to say something like, I mean, do people not realize what the culture's like out there? what it's like in today's political, social climate. You can't say stuff like that. I just, I, I'm baffled. I don't know what possesses a man, a grown man to say, yeah, I am going to openly admit that I want to have dinner with Hitler. I mean, you can't do that. <laughs> and that's why Northern is probably never going to get the chance to put their defense on the field against Morris Berger, who, again, very likely is not going to have a job with Grand Valley by the end of the week. I don't even know what they're, what are they investigating here? The school's official statement said that his comments are not reflective of Grand Valley State University and that he has been put on suspension while they launch a thorough investigation. But I mean, what's there to investigate? Are you looking at his tone of voice? I mean, <laughs> you can't say something like that. I get it. I get how it was intended and what he said. I I get that, that he's not condoning what Hitler did or his actions, but he's talking about the way that he was able to rally a group. I get that. It's still stupid to say. You're putting yourself in a position that you don't need to. I mean, some things are just better left unsaid. I mean, can we agree? This was one of those things that would have just been better left unsaid. I tell you what, speaking of football, and I want to just touch on the Pro Bowl here before we go to break. We did have the Pro Bowl yesterday. We touched on that a little bit earlier with the new rule change, how it was implemented, how it was poorly interpreted. But Lamar Jackson is named offensive MVP. Calais Campbell, the defensive MVP, as the AFC wins their fourth straight, 38 to 33 over the NFC yesterday in Orlando. Drew Brees, by the way, making headlines by saying he's going to contemplate retirement. And he should know about a month after the Super Bowl. In lieu of that, Russell Wilson, scheduled to start the game at quarterback for the NFC, allowed Breeze to take over the starting spot. I tell you what, Drew Breeze isn't a guy that can retire this offseason, can he? I don't believe Drew Breeze is leaving. I really don't. I mean, he just can't. He just can't. The way the last few seasons have ended, I know he wants one more ring. 
I mean, but he can't let his career end the way it has with the Minneapolis miracle, then with the debacle last year against the Rams, to what happened this year, losing to the Vikings again, albeit a little controversially in overtime. I, I, I can't see this as being over for Drew Brees. I know that he's etched his name in the record books like he has. I still think he's got something to prove a little bit. I still think he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder that he's not part of the Rodgers, Brady, even Mahomes conversation. I still think Drew Brees has at least one more season left in him. We find out in about a month, though. He makes it official. With that, let's take our last time out. When we come back, we'll break down this weekend's NHL All-Star festivities. Plus, Baseball America came out with their farm system rankings. Does your team have a lot of prospects in the pipeline? I'll tell you who has the best next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Well, it's a big day out in Berea, Ohio today. There's not many places in America where it's a bigger day than in the Cleveland suburb because the Cleveland Browns have their new general manager, 32-year-old Andrew Barry. We're going to get to baseball and ranking some farm systems, some prospect players here in a moment, but I want to talk about this because this morning the Browns added the final piece of their puzzle by bringing in a guy who's had experience with them before, also worked with the Colts and with the Eagles. Bill Polian once said that Barry was, quote, one of the brightest young men he's ever had the pleasure of working with. And he's known for being a high analytic guy. That's exactly what the Browns are looking for. So Barry, again, he's been with three different teams in the league already. Now it's his fourth at just age 32, has a Harvard degree. His top assistant is 47 with a Yale degree. And basically the entire front office is going to be Ivy Leaguers sitting at the computer morning to night. The analytics department the Cleveland Browns are going to put together for the upcoming season in the near future is going to rival that of NASA. I'm only half joking. I really am. You know why Josh McDaniels didn't want the job? Because he was going to have to turn over his play chart, his playbook, and his game notes, his plans, what have you, to the front office every Friday before a game. And they were going to let the analytics team decide, is this a good plan or not? Or do you need to go back and revision that a little bit, coach? McDaniel said, absolutely not. Kevin Stefanski said, yeah, fine. Now, if this does work, it won't because, you know, this is the Browns. It's not going to work. If this were to work, though, what kind of precedent would that set for football going forward? Precedent could be changed in a myriad of ways here in the upcoming couple of years even as far as the NFL goes I'm not just talking about the rule changes like what we saw yesterday with the Pro Bowl but I'm talking about what we could see this weekend with the Super Bowl and what we could see in the upcoming seasons with the Cleveland Browns because I said it on the show a few weeks ago the Browns have alternated between schemers analytic guys coordinator types or culture guys guys like Mike Pettin but then they go back to schemers like Kevin Stefanski or Pat Shermer, guys like that. Rob Chudzinski, maybe. And you think about the hires Cleveland has had. They're going all in on the analytics right now. I'm not saying analytics can't work in football. I mean, maybe they are going analytic heavy. I don't think it's going to work out because it is Cleveland. And because they have a culture problem there, I don't think any amount of analytics is going to fix that. So I don't really know what I'm expecting from Cleveland this year. But by some miracle, if it works out, even if they go 9-7, and seven, they make the postseason, 
Then what does that say about analytics going forward? Then what will we start thinking about as far as the future of football, how they coach, how they scout? We have so many data points throughout the season now. You, you see those commercials for like Amazon AI or whatever, the artificial intelligence, whatever it is, and they can get you so much data from every movement that with all this data, are we headed on an inevitable path toward going all analytic in football anyway? And the Browns are just expediting the process. It's possible. It's indeed possible. Now, if this does turn into a success, and I would say winning nine games next year means it is a success, then do we start looking at the Andrew Barry GM tree like we do someone's coaching tree? Then does it become getting your Ivy League guys to come run a football team because they know how to process data. The Cleveland Browns are going all in with this. They made it clear with hiring Andrew Barry earlier this morning. They are going to be the most analytically reliant team in pro sports. There will be no one across any sports platform and probably several businesses and companies outside of football that will be able to rival what the Browns are doing with numbers and data. That precedent could very well be set in the NFL within the next decade, depending how it goes in Cleveland. Another precedent that we got to account for, we got to think about how this is going to or could potentially change the NFL, depending what happens this weekend. Super Bowl 54, when you've got the Kansas City Chiefs and their high-flying offense going up against the smash-mouth 49er defense. Now, if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, the precedent doesn't change because you're still looking for that pocket-passer-type quarterback, albeit a little athletic, that he can still get out and make plays if he needs to. But you're looking for the air raid system. You're looking for the Pat Mahomes-type quarterback. You're looking to surround him with big offensive weapons, with Tariq Hill and Travis Kelsey. The precedent does not change if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl this weekend. You can get away with a defense that is inconsistent, good at times, but leaves something to be desired. That's going to be what the precedent is, and that's where we've been going the last few years with big offense. Lamar Jackson, in a way has changed the precedent. Not in the sense that he's not going with big offense, but it's about how he's doing it. In the end, he's taken a different path than Pat Mahomes, but he's getting to the same destination. The precedent could be changed this weekend if the 49ers win. Because then do you try to start developing a team like they did? I'm not just saying with a good defense. Yeah, we know defense wins championships. I'm talking about the way they've drafted. And they did it through two different front offices. Since 2012, they haven't drafted a position play, skilled position player on offense in the first round. They have gone with all linemen. They have a great offensive-minded coach, and you pair him with okay offensive weapons that he is going to get the most out of. He is going to squeeze every little drop out of them. Could that be a new precedent? Yeah, obviously, there's only... Very, very few. There's a handful of guys like Kyle Shanahan out there. He's a rare breed. But if you think about it, you don't need to go out and get the next Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. You can make it work passing 25 times in two playoff games with an okay quarterback, with a guy maybe slightly above average, as long as you give him great protection 
and you load up on the defensive end. It doesn't hurt to have an assistant coach who should be a head coach as well in the NFL. I'm talking about Robert Sala because every coach is a specialist on one side of the ball or the other. And whatever guy you pick as the coordinator on the other side of the ball, you're almost like co-head coaches. And I get that, that Sala and Shanahan are hard to replicate. But there is a precedent if the 49ers were to win the Super Bowl this weekend. That's going to take time. It's like a six, seven-year plan. But the 49ers are set up to be good for the coming years. I mean, this isn't going away anytime soon. They're not loading up on max contracts where players have to get paid before your window closes like the Chiefs are. The Niners are set to be good for a long time. And if they win this weekend, does that mean there's a new precedent in the NFL? How many teams are patient enough to go that route? Probably very few, but the Niners were. And that's why it's paying off for them. And especially if the Niners win convincingly this weekend. I've been hearing this multiple times from Freddie Coleman to Ronnie Lott, whose audio I'm going to play for you here in a moment. They believe if the game is a blowout this weekend, that it will be the Niners blowing out the Chiefs, not vice versa. And to me, I just can't see that Chiefs offense allowing themselves to get blown out. They're that good. They're going to keep their team in the game. But take a listen to what Ronnie Lott said yesterday on ESPN Radio. The guy is going to complete the ball. It's not about him. It's about us making sure that their receivers and the speed that they have, that we have eye discipline, that we stay with the man or stay with the zone or stay with the principles of the defense. Where people get distracted is that a guy like that forces you to look at them you got to be able to have eye discipline that's going to be imperative for seven guys probably eight guys to be disciplined enough to understand where they need to be on the field don't do anything where you're undisciplined you know make the sound tackle do the things that you've done all year long and if they do the things that they've done all year long they they could win this game easily it could be a two touchdown win for this team i mean two touchdowns i just can't see this game either way being more than a three to seven point difference something like that i hope it's not a two touchdown game i hope we have a good super bowl i mean it's been a couple of years since we've had a super bowl that was really fun to watch i mean last year just wasn't fun to watch don't be one of those people by the way let me just put this out there don't be one of those people if this game is an absolute dud like it is last year that criticizes people and says they are not real football fans if they didn't enjoy it last year the worst type of person was somebody who said you're not a real football fan if you don't enjoy a 13 to 3 defensive battle oh entertain me no no yeah, those are the worst kind of people. Don't be one of those people this year, no matter how this Super Bowl ends up. I tell you what, though, I want to go to baseball here before we run out of time. This weekend, Baseball America came out with their rankings of the top farm systems in professional baseball, particularly the top 100 prospects. And just one team sits alone atop the standings with the most prospects in Baseball America's top 100. But... Does that mean they have the best farm system overall heading into the summer of 2020? I don't believe it does. Let me give you the results from Baseball America. The one team by themselves with the most prospects in Baseball America's top 100 rankings, the Tampa Bay Rays. They have six 
of the top 100 prospects, according to Baseball America. Eight different teams, though, have five of the top 100. They would be the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Atlanta Braves, the LA Dodgers, the Minnesota Twins, the San Diego Padres, the Seattle Mariners, the San Francisco Giants, and the Miami Marlins. The Rays do have six of the top 100 prospects in minor league baseball, according to Baseball America. I don't believe that they are the best farm system, though. I think they're right up there, especially with the fact that they have the number one overall prospect in minor league baseball this year, Wander Franco, 18-year-old shortstop. And right now, he is the top-ranked prospect in baseball. They've also got Brandon McKay, the two-way player from Louisville, who did make his major league debut last year. and He did it with a bang. During his debut in late June, he took a no-hitter into like the seventh inning. Do you remember that? It was like the last Saturday in June. He's still technically a prospect, and they did get rid of Matt Libatore. They traded him over to St. Louis a couple of weeks ago. That being said, Tampa Bay still has plenty of prospects in the pipeline. They've shown they can win without having to spend money at the major league level, that they're going to be just fine. That being said, I think they have the second best farm system in all of professional baseball. The only team that I believe has a better farm system right now would be the San Diego Padres. They're headlined by Mackenzie Gore, who's arguably the top pitching prospect in the minors right now. A 20-year-old left-hander, plus you couple him with guys like Taylor Trammell, Luis Patino has really come on strong. He's the number three prospect in that organization, another right-handed pitcher. He's 19 years old. And then you take into account how maybe the most impressive names from this young core group that San Diego has are already in the majors. Chris Paddock, Fernando Tatis Jr., they have exhausted their eligibility to be considered prospects. They're now major leaguers. They're not factored into this. Plus, you think about the guys that San Diego's drafted within the last two years. Now, these guys aren't going to see the majors this year. Guys like Ryan Weathers, Xavier Edwards, Owen Miller, C.J. Abrams. Those guys won't see the majors this coming season. But they are setting San Diego up to be the team with the best farm system for at least half this decade. San Diego is going to be a team that may not have those latter four guys, as I mentioned, come up and help them get to a contention run this year. But if they decide that they do want to contend, that they do want to go for it all this year, they've got the prospects to do it with. I mean, there's no guarantee that you can ever hit on a prospect or a draft pick. There's not always a guarantee when they come up to the majors that they're going to translate. But what you can bank on, what will translate, is ammunition. And that's what the Padres have right now. You tell a team, yeah, we'll send you these guys. They're going to be about three, four years away from getting to the majors, but you're rebuilding anyway. We'll trade you for somebody who can help us now. And because of that stock, that ammunition, the Padres very well could be a playoff team this year. I don't know what they're going to be. I'm not ready to speculate as far as they're going to be a playoff team yet. I still think Cincinnati and the Mets are going to get the wild card spots, and I don't think the Padres outlast the Dodgers. But don't be shocked if San Diego is there playing meaningful baseball this fall. With that, we're hitting the 5 o'clock hour. Hey, don't forget we have Westwood Patriot Basketball on ESPN-UP this evening. I'll be there with the play-by-play. It's my hope that you join me as West Iron County comes to Westwood High School. Pre-game right around 7, tip-off set for 7.15 here on ESPN-UP. By the way... 
case you missed this, Bo Pelini. Remember him? He's got a new job. He is leaving Youngstown State. He is going to be the new defensive coordinator for Ed Orgeron at LSU. Replaces Dave Aranda, who took off for the Baylor head coaching job. So we get Coach O and Coach Pelini. And I love that. I absolutely love that. I can't wait for it. Also, Kobe Bryant and his memorable final game, the one where he dropped 60. ESPN TV is going to show that tonight at 9 o'clock in Kobe's honor. So if you want to watch the replay of Kobe's final game in which he erupts for 60 points, it was just an amazing thing to watch for the game of basketball. ESPN TV is going to air that tonight at 9. With that, Let's call it a day. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. Until then, I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN, UP, WZAM, Ishwaming, Marquette.